chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And where is Alyssa Gibbs? Is she in here tonight? I said I was going to do this. Mac, run get Alyssa Gibbs. Hurry. Where, where is she? Ah, hurry. Sorry about that. That's my son. Get the lead out. And now I will do a little tap dance. I don't need a little soft shoe. <laughs> After Jake, I don't want to try. That was just too good. Too good. I'm not, I'm not doing that. There she is. Everyone turn around and look at Miss Alyssa Gibbs. We are so proud of Alyssa. Alyssa has signed a college scholarship to play soccer for the University of South Carolina uh, Upstate. And we're real proud of her. That's quite an honor. And we just want to congratulate her. And uh, thank you. God bless you, Alyssa. And I know that in all you do and in all the goals you score and in all the awards you win and all the achievements you accomplish, you're going to give God all of the glory and all the honor. I have no doubt about that. So God bless you. Okay. We'll talk about Ryan, but I don't, I don't know enough about what you're doing, Ryan, to talk about you tonight. But I'm going to talk about you when I know enough about what you're doing to talk about you. But we're proud of you, too. Matthew chapter 11. Father, thank you so much for your wonderful love for us. Thank you for these kids, Lord. We have so many talented and, and just kids with a heart to serve you. We thank you for that. We pray tonight, Lord, that as we study your word, Lord, that you would just really encourage us. We need your encouragement. We need your instruction. Lord, tonight we, we need your peace. And we pray, Lord, that you'll give it to us as we delve into your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. President Abraham Lincoln once said, you can please some of the people all of the time. You can please all of the people some of the time. But you can never please all of the people all of the time. The conclusion is, don't try. The crowd is always a fickle audience. Not even the Son of God pleased everybody. And that's where we leave off Jesus in his discussion of John the Baptist, verse 16. But to what shall I liken this generation? Chapter 11, verse 16. Is it like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. Jesus is comparing his generation to fickle, spoiled school children. There was no pleasing them, whether they danced or whether they mourned. Though music was played for both, it didn't satisfy. They couldn't make up their minds about what they wanted. He gets more exact here in verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man 
came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Neither John nor Jesus pleased the Jews. And they both took opposite approaches. John and his men fasted, but the Jews thought they were too austere. Jesus and his men feasted. And what did they do? They called him a glutton and a drunkard. They weren't happy with John and his mourning men. They weren't happy with Jesus and his merry men. The Jews complained that John was too aloof and that Jesus was too much apart. Notice this. Not even God in the flesh could please people. So why are we trying? Are you a people pleaser? Are you? Ordinarily, making people happy is a noble desire. But when your drive to make someone happy causes you to engage in destructive behavior or to compromise a godly principle, your desire to please has become a dreaded disease. Bill Cosby once said, I don't know the key to success, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody. Trying to satisfy the fickleness of people is a losing proposition. Hey, rather than please people, our ambition should be to please God. And if pleasing God is your goal, you'll make the right people happy in just the right ways at just the right time. Jesus' one desire was to always please His Father in heaven. Once I saw a cartoon of two politicians that were walking down the hall together. One said to the other, I never met a fence I couldn't straddle. How fitting for an election year. But that was also the attitude of the people who observed Jesus. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle, but they could never make up their mind. They were fence straddlers. And Jesus has harsh words for them in the next few verses. Verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. This Greek word translated rebuke means to taunt or chide or to rail at verbally. It comes from a root word which means to chop with the teeth. In other words, Jesus literally chewed out these cities. He rebuked them by saying, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities with Gentile populations. In Matthew 15, verse 21, we're told that Jesus made a visit to these cities. He ministered in their communities so that they were without excuse. But you see, Tyre and Sidon had not been nearly as exposed to Jesus and His miracles as had been Chorazin and Bethsaida. Have you ever heard of the Bermuda Triangle? Ever heard of that? It's an area in the Caribbean Sea where strange phenomena and mysterious activity take place. Some people believe the triangle is a hotbed for demonic activity. It's a site for the supernatural. But there is another triangle of real estate known for the supernatural. No area on earth has seen more miracles per square mile than the area on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. For there between the towns of Chorazin and the two fishing villages of Capernaum and Bethsaida, 
five miles by three miles by four miles. There, Jesus did most and many of his miracles. This region has been called the Evangelical Triangle. Between 28 and 32 A.D., here's what people living in this triangle witnessed. Five loaves of bread and two minnows were multiplied to feed a feast for 5,000 families. Blind men received their sight. Lame men walked again. A girl was raised from the dead. A man actually walked on top of the water without sinking. A violent storm was calmed by the same man's word. All manner of diseases and demons, diseases were healed and demons were exercised. The people who lived in this triangle, who saw these events, were a privileged population. And yet, though they were impressed, they refused to enlist. They failed to follow Jesus, and he had strong words for them. Verse 22, but I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. You are more privileged than them, and with privilege comes responsibility. Notice God judges cities as well as individuals. Here, Tyre and Sidon, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and a minute Capernaum are all judged by Jesus. You know, it's interesting that God not only holds people, individuals accountable, but He also holds corporate, collective identities accountable. In Revelation 2 and 3, you remember Jesus judges the seven churches. Churches are held accountable. In Isaiah 13, verse 24, or 13, chapters 13 through 24, Jesus judges nations. Nations are held accountable. Here he judges cities. It's my belief that in this modern age, he'll also judge corporations and endowments and political parties and lobbying groups and labor unions. Jesus holds collective entities responsible and accountable just as he does in individuals. Now he says in verse 23, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. When you recall that fire from heaven is what incinerated Sodom, these are strong words indeed. Of the tri-cities of this evangelical triangle, none was more privileged than Capernaum. Matthew 9 verse 1 refers to Capernaum as Jesus' quote, own city. You remember Bethlehem was Jesus' birthplace. Nazareth was where he was raised. But Capernaum was his chosen hometown. It was where Jesus headquartered his ministry. And it was the site of his greatest miracles. Indeed, as Jesus says here, it was exalted to heaven. You remember the city of Sodom was notorious for its unbridled lust and its sexual perversions. Sodom was a perverted place, whereas Capernaum was a privileged place. And as we often say, with privilege comes responsibility. I mean, the more you've seen of God's work, the more you've received of God's grace, the more you know of God's wisdom, the more accountable you are for what you've seen and known and received. You see, too many Christians are a woodpile of knowledge 
but they're a cold fireplace. They learn it, but they never live it. This was Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida. And as you can see today, there's nothing left of any of the three, is there? You don't want to be like them. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Did you know that the 1891 official basketball rule book contained two pages? That was it. Whereas the 1991 rule book has 114 pages. As I said this morning, the tendency in life is to go from simplicity to complexity. But not so with Jesus. He loves to bring simplicity to life and to theology. And here's why. To appreciate simplicity, you have to be humble. Have you noticed that haughtiness adores complexity? I mean, pride divides men into know-it-alls and to know-nothings. Whereas simplicity does just the opposite. It unites us by humbling us. God deliberately packaged His truth in simple principles, simple thoughts. And it was a stroke of genius. For in doing so, God hid His truth from the haughty. And He revealed it to the humble and to the babes. Verse 27 tells us, And all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. You see, it's impossible to know God apart from Jesus. And you'll run into people, oh, well, I, I know God, I have a relationship with God. I, I just don't care much for Jesus. You're fooling yourself. You're blind to the truth. Jesus said it was impossible to know his Father unless you come through him, unless you know him. The door to God always opens to only those who come to Jesus and embrace him as their Lord and as their Savior. And he invites us to come. It's not an exclusive club. He invites all of us to come. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. On August 15, 1930, New York State Supreme Court Justice Joseph Carter was attending a restaurant. He was having an evening meal. He left the restaurant, his meeting with friends, he hailed a cab. But Judge Carter was never seen or heard from again. What happened to Judge Carter? We don't know. To this day, we don't know. It's a cold case. It's a case that has never been solved. But there was one clue. When his wife returned to their apartment, there was a check for a large sum of money that had been made out to her. The check had been signed by her husband. And along with the check was a short note. And this is what it read. I am very, very tired. Love, Joe. That's all we know. Was it a suicide? Perhaps. But it was obvious that Judge Carter had become emotionally exhausted. He had become weighted down with life's demands and had decided to give up. 
If your heart is heavy tonight, if your spirit is tired, verses 28 through 30 are words of hope for you. For Jesus invites you to enjoy a restful rather than a stressful life. He calls us to do only three things. To come to Him. To yoke to Him. To learn from Him. Usually a younger ox was harnessed to an older, stronger ox. The yoke was made in such a way that it distributed the weight off of the younger ox onto the stronger ox. And in our relationship with Jesus, He is the lead ox. Submit to Him, and the load falls on His shoulders, and His shoulders are big enough for any burden. Jesus does the work. Jesus carries the burden. If you're in a yoke that chokes tonight, the burden you carry didn't come from Jesus. For He tells us, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So here's what we need to do if we want to enjoy the rest of God. This peaceful life. This restful life. Here's what we need to do. We need to come. Have you come to Jesus? Do you come to Jesus constantly, daily, moment by moment? Do you spend concerted time and concentrated time coming to Jesus? Is your whole life about coming to Jesus? If not, why not? And then we need to be yoked to Jesus. We need to accept His Lordship in our life. We need to let Him be the lead ox and for Him to set the pace and the cadence. And we need to fall in step, walking side by side with Jesus. And then we need to learn from Jesus. We need to be teachable. We need to come. We need to be reachable. We need to yoke. We need to be agreeable. And we need to learn. We need to be teachable. If we can come and yoke and learn, we too can enjoy this wonderful rest that the Son of God promises us. But chapter 12 begins. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And His disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now Jesus said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. Yet the yoke of the Pharisees was complicated, not easy. Their burden was heavy. It was not light. The Pharisees interpreted the law in such a way that it became impossible for the Jews to keep all of its demands. As a matter of fact, a couple of years later, at the Council of Jerusalem, Peter will make this statement to his fellow Jews. He says in Acts 15, verse 10, Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? In other words, Peter's confessing that the Jews, it was impossible to keep the demands that had been placed upon them. The Pharisees had laced up the Jewish people in a straitjacket of legalism, doing and keeping rules and religion, had replaced relationship with God in simple faith. In nowhere was this more apparent than in the keeping of the Sabbath day. <clears throat> you know, the law said to keep the Sabbath day holy. But then the Jews tried to interpret what holy meant, what work, you weren't supposed to work, but they interpreted what work meant. In fact, the Jewish Talmud had 24 chapters, not pages. It had 24 chapters on how to observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. How's that for complicating something simple? I mean, God's command, the fifth commandment, it was just this broad, simple, sweeping command. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
And God intended for this broad principle to be interpreted and applied in every heart by the gentle touch of the Holy Spirit. God designed the Sabbath as a day for us to rejoice and to relax. A day for us to recharge our batteries and rejuvenate. The Sabbath was a day of worship and play in contrast to the work week. Instead, the Pharisees applied this law in such a way that it became a heavy load. They created all kinds of stipulations that defined the meaning of work. Most Jews looked forward to the end of the Sabbath day so they could rest from all the regulations. We can get back to work and rest. You ever had one of those vacations? Disney World? Here's an interesting thought. I've often wondered, what were all those Pharisees doing in the fields on the Sabbath day anyway? Interesting question, isn't it? Their own codes prohibited them from being more than 3,000 feet from their home on the Sabbath. But they were so jealous of Jesus and so determined to trap him that they broke their own laws to spy on Jesus and to condemn him and his disciples. When they saw the disciples standing there grinding the grain in their hands so that they would have something to eat, where they could eat the crushed seed, they accused them of doing work. Oh, this is a clear violation of the Sabbath. But Jesus saw it differently. Verse 3. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now Jesus makes a point here that the Pharisees hadn't considered. Often in God's will, other issues are more important than a strict observance of the letter of the law. And here's an example. The law said that the sacred showbread, the exhibited bread there in the tabernacle, could only be eaten by the priests. But when David's troops got hungry, God allowed them to take and to eat the showbread. It was their only bread available. It saved David's men from starvation. Jesus is saying... That human need will always take precedent over religious ritual. Think about that. Human need takes place over religious ritual. I'll never forget the Bible study I was teaching down. This is before we started Calvary Chapel. I was invited to teach at the First Baptist Church in Mountain Park. And I was late getting down there to teach. And I was running behind. And I was teaching on the Good Samaritan and helping poor people and helping people out. And, and I, was, I came out the end of the subdivision, I hung a right-hand turn and started down the road, and I drove right past a poor, homeless bag lady walking down the street. Because I had to get down there and teach on the story of the Good Samaritan. And I put the brakes on, and I backed the car up, and I offered to give the lady a ride. And um, You know, sometimes we, we get that way, where... Our religious deeds, our religious works, our rituals, our, our church work. And it's so important. Here Jesus said that even though it wasn't lawful for David to eat the showbread, in this case, human need took precedent over religious ritual. Compassion is more important to God than tradition. Do you know that? Compassion is more important than tradition in the eyes of God. Here's another example of how things can be more important than a strict observance of the letter of the law. 
He says, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? You, you know, labor on the Sabbath day was taboo. But if the priest didn't work, who's going to open the temple? I, I mean, you're supposed to worship on the Sabbath day, but somebody's got to open the temple for you to worship. And that requires the priest to work. So the priest got to work so you can worship. So if the priest don't work, you can't worship and you'll violate the law. But the priest, when he works, he violates the law. Oh, my. This is why legalism is so ludicrous. Often it creates a catch-22. A priest is forced to violate the law so nobody else has to violate the law. So everybody else can keep the law. That's why a strict interpretation of the law can get in the way of doing God's will. And keeping its broader commandments. The priest was like a pastor. Granted, he only worked one day a week. But it was the day of worship. And his work made it possible for everyone else to worship. When we seek God to obey God, we need to be flexible. We need to be open. And we always need to be led by the Holy Spirit. And we need to pay great attention, not just to the letter of the law, but to the spirit behind that law. That's the true intent of the law. Jesus says, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. And this must have stunned the Pharisees. This was the shocker. The Pharisees might excuse the priests for working on the Sabbath because they were serving the glorious holy temple and thus they were serving God. But Jesus claimed to be greater than the temple. Thus serving Jesus was also serving God. And no violation on the Sabbath day. But if you had known what this means, Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And here he quotes Hosea 6, verse 6. He's saying sacrifice for sacrifice sake, ritual for ritual sake, is of really no value to God. Hey, God has no appetite for dead animals. I hope you understand that. That's not what all those sacrifices were about. Priestly duties were of no particular beauty to him. It was the attitude behind the sacrifice. It was the meaning in the ritual that made it valuable. What really matters to God is that we show mercy. That we convey his heart to others. Not necessarily that we follow all of the rules and rituals. Verse 8 tells us, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And if the Pharisees weren't angry at this point, <laughs> they were now. This was the boiling point. Jesus says, He is greater than the Sabbath. Therefore, only He can rightly interpret Sabbath regulations. In fact, He was the one who invented the Sabbath in the first place. Verse 9, Now when He had departed from there, He went into their synagogue. On our tours to Israel, we actually go to this very synagogue. Not far from the water. There it is. Right there in the uh, ruins of Capernaum. Here was the hub of religious activity in the region. Here was the synagogue of Capernaum. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And why did they ask him that? Did they really want to know? Mm-mm. They asked him that they might accuse him. 
Now, Mark's gospel implies that the man was planted in the synagogue as an opportunity to test Jesus. The Pharisees interpreted healing as work. So to heal on the Sabbath day was a violation. It was breaking the law. It's interesting. According to the Jews, you could treat a wound to stop it bleeding on the Sabbath day. You could keep a person's condition from worsening, but you could do nothing to actually improve their condition or hasten their healing. That then would be work. And so once you get the bleeding guy's wound stopped, well, just sit over there, buddy, till sundown, and then we'll get you to a doctor. That was kind of the Jewish mentality. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's interesting, God had embedded in the law exceptions to the law. For example, you could save your neighbor's livestock. Thus, if it's allowable to help a cow, why not heal a man? I mean, think about it. Jesus' thought, Jesus's thought was that that application should be obvious. But it wasn't to the Pharisees. We'll see by their reaction. And then Jesus turned and he said to the man with the withered hand, Stretch out your hand. That's a strange thing to say to somebody with a paralyzed, crippled hand. Stretch out your hand. My aunt, my dad's sister, spent her whole life in a wheelchair. She was crippled. I can remember going down on Sunday afternoons and visiting my aunt with my dad. Anne was the only sibling in the family that had been born in the hospital. And the family to this very day believes that she was dropped by a nurse and that's how she... She was injured. I have no idea. But among her handicaps, she had a withered hand. She had a curled up little hand. It was curled up into a little ball. And she just kind of held it up here against her chest. Her fingers were frozen and rigid. It sort of served her more like a club for gross movements than for specific reaching and touching. Well, that was this man. He also had the same condition. He had this withered hand. It was just gnarled and curled up, and his fingers were frozen and rigid. And he just kind of held it. It was more like, a, more like just sort of a, a rake, to sort of rake things up. He couldn't actually grip them. Yet Jesus gives this man an impossible command. He says to this man with a withered hand, Stretch out your hand. Does that strike you as funny? I mean, stretch out my hand. Think about it from his point of view. What do you mean stretch out my hand? The muscles are paralyzed. Don't you see? If I could stretch out my hand, I would have done it before now. But apparently none of those doubts, none of those thoughts entered his thinking. He didn't consider the physical impossibilities of the command. Instead, he decided instantly to obey the command. It had come from Jesus. And in the moment... The message exited his brain and made its way in those nanoseconds down the nerve fibers to the muscles in his hand. A miracle occurred. In that moment he obeyed, Jesus responded with wonderful, miraculous healing power. He touched this man's body and his hand was instantly healed. For the first time in his life, his fingers worked. And this is how God works with us, I hope you know. 
He issues seemingly impossible commands. He asks us to do something we've never done before. You you mean speak in front of a crowd? Oh, my. I've never done that. Why would you ask me to do that? Love a homeless person? Share my faith? Stretch out a withered hand? But in that moment, we have no choice, do we? If we're to follow Jesus, if we're to obey Him, we have to table the doubts. We have to shelve the negative thinking. We can focus on the impossibility and remain incapacitated, or we can obey and experience a miracle and know a healing and be used by God in a dramatic way. Notice, and He stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. (laughs) They just didn't get it, did they? Jesus works miracles. The Pharisees are full of malice. How tragic. The blindness of legalism. God is doing an incredible work, but some people only focus on the negatives and how they can destroy it. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Notice he made time to heal everyone. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. That was Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Jesus' rejection by the Jews and his reception by the Gentiles had all been predicted by Isaiah. Verse 19 continues the quote from Isaiah. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, it's not Jesus' style to force himself on anyone. He avoids ugly confrontations as much as possible. When he heard that the Pharisees wanted to kill him, he could have attacked them. He could have fought back. And trust me, he would have won. But instead, Jesus simply withdrew and he ministered to the people who were willing to receive his ministry. Jesus was no bully. He didn't bulldoze over people. He came in gentleness and in kindness. And it was also said of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. Till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. Isaiah speaks of how Jesus handles hurting, bruised people. And it's still his approach today. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. There are bruised reeds. And there are smoking flax sitting in some of the seats here tonight. Some of you have been beaten down and bruised by this world. You're dragging. You're bent over. You're a bruised reed. You've forgotten how to stand tall. Some of you are just about burned out. You're like a smoking flax. The world has doused your fire and your passion and your enthusiasm for life. Your flame has almost fizzled. Understand, Jesus doesn't finish the job. His goal is not to put you down, but to pick you up. He takes the last remaining embers. 
and he fans the flame and he blows on those flickering hopes until they're aflame again. He puts a splint around the break, the bent in the reed, the bruise, and he nurtures that splint and he supports it until it mends. Jesus brings hope and healing and encouragement to the bruised reed and to the smoking flax. Jesus cares for us. As Hosea says, he draws us with bands of love. And I want to say a lot more about those verses, but that's what I'm teaching on next Sunday morning, so I better move on. Verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Here's another example where physical sickness was caused by demonic activity. Obviously now, all sickness isn't caused by demons. But it does happen sometimes. He says, And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Son of David, remember, was a title for the Messiah. God's deliverer of Israel. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fella does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub, or Lord of the Flies, had become another name for Satan by this time. And here Jesus' critics, they realize that they can't deny the reality of these miracles. I mean, my, these works had been done in the public square in the eyes of, of multitudes of people. They couldn't deny the miracles, and so they tried to refute their source. The Pharisees claimed that, oh, Jesus is casting out these demons by the power of the devil. Verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts. <laughs> Hope you know that. Hope you know that. That's about the couple that came to me that were having marriage problems. And first thing they said was, we've really been reluctant to do this because we didn't want God to know we were having problems. I hope you know that Jesus knows your thoughts. And he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Good point. You see, their argument lacked logic. Why would Satan oppose his own forces? The devil isn't dumb. You don't cast out. Satan doesn't cast out Satan. I mean, it, it takes his henchmen being united and being in sync. That's when they become most effective. Jesus asked the Jews a question. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. There were Jewish exorcists who also were casting out demons. And Jesus is calling for some consistency here. Hey, if you say that, that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, why don't you say that your own Jewish exorcists are casting out demons by the power of Satan? Why is it any different for them? Are they of the devil? But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what this really means. That's what this casting out the demons means. It means that the king has come. The king of the spiritual realm. The king of heaven has come. And the demons are obeying and running at his sight. That's what this really means. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
For how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? When Jesus cast out a demon, he was exhibiting his superiority, the superiority of his kingdom over the kingdom of Satan. Satan is the strong man, but Jesus is the man stronger still who comes in and binds up that strong man and then takes the plunder. Have you ever heard someone pray, We bind Satan in Jesus' name. You ever heard something like that? Did you ever think, What does that mean? The terminology is really drawn from this illustration. You see, often the person that we pray for is not just a person in need. It's a person who's trapped and enslaved. It's a POW, a spiritual prisoner of war. Lots of times the person we pray for is under the devil's sinister influence. <clears throat> and before we can just walk in and free that person, we first have to bind the strong man. We have to overthrow the person guarding that person. So that we can then walk out with the plunder. That's why in warfare prayer. And there is a type of prayer called warfare prayer. That's why when we're praying and fighting the spiritual battle. We can ask Jesus to bind Satan. To be the stronger man who binds that strong man. We can ask Jesus. And really only Jesus can bind Satan. We can't bind him. Who are we? But we can ask Jesus to bind Satan. That kind of prayer is like a stun gun. Here's what happens. You pray. Jesus immobilizes the devil's influence in that man's life. Then you rush in via your witness and your love. And you take the plunder right out from underneath him. While he's stunned through your prayers. This is often though why our witness is worthless. Because we come in, we sashay in, witnessing and loving, but we haven't first bound the strong man in prayer. And that's why our efforts are futile. You bind the strong man through prayer, then you come in through your witness and you take the plunder. Jesus says in verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. In his confrontation with the Pharisees, there was no neutrality. If someone refused to follow Jesus, they were agreeing with the Pharisees that Jesus was of the devil. A vote to abstain was in reality a vote to oppose. Verse 31 is one of the most misunderstood passages in all of the Bible. And it has caused many, many Christians, perhaps some of you tonight, unnecessary angst and anxiety. Here it is. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Have you ever wondered what exactly is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? First, I want you to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In John 15, verse 26, Jesus said, of the Holy Spirit, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify 
of me. Okay, what is the Holy Spirit's primary job? To testify of Jesus. So when Jesus cast out a demon, the Spirit was testifying that he was king over creation, that his kingdom had come. Now the Pharisees had heard Jesus teach and they had rejected his wisdom. The Pharisees had seen his miracles and they had sat back in sort of smug indifference, if not defiance. They were also there at the baptism of Jesus when they heard the Father speak from heaven and say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But notice they had turned a deaf ear to heaven's testimony. They had read the Father's endorsements and predictions in the Old Testament. All the prophecies that had predicted Jesus. They read them. They knew them. They knew where he was to be born, remember, in Matthew 2. And yet, once more, they denied the truth about Jesus. In other words, since the Pharisees rejected the Son and rejected the Father. They rejected the Father through the pages of Scripture. They rejected the Son and His testimony on earth. Since they rejected the Father and the Son... There was only one other voice that they could possibly hear and know the truth of God. And that was the voice of who? The Holy Spirit. Jesus is telling us here in these verses that we can read the words of the Father in Scripture. We can hear the words of Jesus preached from a pulpit. And we can still turn a deaf ear from the message. It's not good, but frankly, it's understandable. The Bible teaches us that apart from Jesus, a man's eyes are spiritually blinded. Yet when the Holy Spirit begins to probe the depths of his being and he lifts up those blinders, if only for a moment, at that moment, if we still reject the truth, then we have no excuse. For we have rejected the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The idea here is that you can reject the Father's witness and there's still the Son. You can reject the Son, Jesus, and there's still the Holy Spirit's testimony. But once you have rejected the Spirit's witness of Jesus, heaven becomes silent. And hope can be lost. Because of His persistence, the Holy Spirit is often known as the hound of heaven. He's, he's always after you. He's he treed me a few times before he finally got me. But in Genesis 6 verse 3, despite his persistence, there we're told, God says, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever. Apparently, there are limits to his patience and persistence. During World War II, an American fighter left the deck of an aircraft carrier late one afternoon with strict instructions to be back by a certain hour. The two pilots were late coming back. In the meantime, a German armada had entered the area. And in order to hide, the carrier had been ordered to kill its lights and to break off communications with all incoming aircraft. As the pilots made their way back to the ship, they couldn't understand why their radios didn't work, why they were dead, and why they couldn't find the aircraft carrier. They crashed in the icy waters. You see, the Spirit of God will keep pointing a man to Jesus. The Spirit of God will keep leading a man home to Jesus. But if that man keeps rejecting the Spirit's voice, there comes a point when God cuts off communications. 
and he withdraws his spirit. This is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And if you're worried you've committed it, chances are you haven't because you're bothered by it. The Holy Spirit's still convicting. He's still speaking to you. You still love God. You still want to please him. It's the person like the Pharisees who, who have rejected and have blasphemed all three witnesses, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They were guilty. The Pharisees were guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And for that sin, God will not forgive. Verse 33. Now either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. Jesus had such a way with the Pharisees. How can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. You know at times everybody can, can make a regret, regrettable statement. You ever made a regrettable statement? Yeah, we all have. It can happen to all of us. But if you could record a person and what comes out of their mouth day in and day out, if you could monitor all of their dialogue, its sum would reveal the true matters of their heart. It would. What's in the heart eventually comes out of the mouth. Jesus says, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Now that is a heavy statement. For the person who is judged, God won't have to go very far to find incriminating evidence. All he'll have to do is play back that person's words. And he'll be able to play them back. For once you speak a word, it never dies. That's literally true. Science tells us that sound waves never cease. They only diminish in their intensity. That means that when you speak a word into the air, it never dies. That word can never be taken back. Every word you speak goes on forever. It has a life all of its own once you speak it. There was a news broadcast in Chicago that was interrupted by a mysterious message that came over the airwaves. Here was the message. It's howdy doody time. It's howdy-doody time. Apparently, the howdy-doody broadcast that had been aired in the 1950s had sailed out into space, had bounced off either an asteroid or satellite, we don't know which, and then it had returned to Earth 30 years later. Jesus says, every word, every idle word ever spoken can still be heard and will one day be judged. That don't put the fear of God in you. Something's wrong. Verse 38 proves that Jesus' warning, though, sailed right over the heads of the Pharisees. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus had already performed countless signs and wonders. And the Pharisees had accused him of being empowered by the devil. Now they want more miracles. 
These guys weren't seekers of truth. They were ambulance chasers. They were sensationalists. They wanted miracles for miracles' sake. They didn't have a TV. Just give us more miracles. Jesus was not about to cater to this kind of carnality. He says that the only sign he's going to give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus' death and burial and resurrection was the only sign that he would supply. For just as Jonah was 72 hours in the fish's belly, Jesus will be 72 hours in the heart of the earth. We know from Ephesians 4 that between Jesus' death and resurrection, he descended into Hades, the Old Testament abode of the dead. I don't believe that the molten hellish core of the earth is actually Hades or hell. There have been people that have tried to listen into the core of the earth and hear the screams and the cries and the people in hell. I, I don't think that, that hell literally is in the core of the earth. But I do believe that hell exists in a spiritual dimension. And that spiritual dimension overlaps and occupies the center of the earth. That's what we're told. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the center or heart of the earth. Three days later, of course, Jesus rose from the dead. After three days, the whale spit up Jonah on the beach. And what did Jonah do? He preached. He preached to Nineveh. And the Ninevites, interestingly, repented of their sin. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Remember, with privilege comes responsibility. Jonah preached to Nineveh and Nineveh repented. The queen of Sheba sought out and trusted in the wisdom of Solomon but Jesus was greater than both Solomon and Jonah. And the people of this evangelical triangle refused to listen to him and his words and his wisdom. Verse 43 When an unclean spirit goes out of a man he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Jesus is pointing out the difference here between reformation and regeneration. There's a difference. Often people get tired of their sin. They get tired of its painful consequences. And so they, quote, clean up their act. They reform. I'm going to be a moral person. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be righteous from now on. They drive off the demons, you might say, and sweep out their lives. They sort of get a new paint job. But if there isn't new management, if there isn't a turnover of the management, then it might be a prettier house. Nevertheless, it's the same old house. 
the spirit might now be vacant, but before long, the old tenants are going to return. And they're going to return with even more buddies. And those demons are going to destroy it worse than it was in the beginning. You see, this was Jesus' warning to the nation of Israel at that time. The nation of Israel was in the midst of a pharisaical revival. In other words, the nation had fallen in love with legalism. They had mistaken morality for spirituality. And Jesus is warning them here, So what if you clean up the house? So what if you become moral and good, but you don't receive the life and love of God? You see, true spirituality involves more than just the emptying out of sin. It requires the opening up and the receiving of the life and love of Jesus. Reform is not enough. There'll be reformed people in hell. People that have cleaned up their act. What we need is new life. Jesus said you must be born again. There has to be regeneration. True transformation requires more than the taking out of certain sins. It involves the taking in of the life of Jesus. Verse 46. While he was still talking to the multitudes... Behold, his mother and brothers stood outside, seeking to speak with him. Now, the Greek word that's translated seeking here is a strong word. In other words, they were searching out Jesus in order to bring him home. That's the sense of it. John 7, verse 5, by the way, says that Jesus' brothers didn't actually believe in him until after the resurrection. Perhaps they thought that Jesus had just sort of flipped out. Man, he's embarrassing our family, claiming to be the son of God and all. And boy, he's making some enemies. I'm sure they were concerned about his safety. Where's all this going? And so they come, they want to bring him back home. But then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. And I'm sure Jesus knew their real intentions. He answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This means a lot of things. One thing I think it safely means is that Jesus was no mama's boy, that's for sure. Jesus loved his family, there's no doubt about that. As a matter of fact, on the cross, he actually recruited John to take care of his mother. He cared about his mother. But to Jesus, spiritual bonds had more significance than physical ties. Those closest to him were those who shared the spiritual connection he had with his father. And the question for us in light of this, what's more important to you and me? Our earthly family? Or our spiritual family. Now, your earthly family lasts a few short years, but your heavenly family will last forever. Here's a closing thought that sort of contrasts the focus on the family mentality of many believers today. Listen to these words. In a valiant effort to stem the tide, many Christians have made the family everything. Every moment of every day, every involvement, Every commitment, every engagement is measured and judged by the question, how will this benefit my family? While this is generally commendable, 
it can degenerate into a family narcissism. The four walls of the home become a temple, and only within and for those walls are sacrifices made. We commit domestic idolatry. We can focus on the family to the point where it becomes an idol. Jesus said your concerns have to be greater than your family. I'll tell you from personal experience, you know, we've served at Calvary Chapel as a family for 27 years now. And our kids have known that, that we were committed, that we were sold out to this, that we were going to do our best to care for the church and to love the church and to love the people. Certainly they came first, no, no doubt about that. But they also knew that we were living our lives for more than just them. That we loved Jesus more than we loved them. And that we were living our life for bigger purposes and higher purposes than just the happiness of our family. My kids have been brought up with that understanding. And you know what? I'm all real proud of them today. God has taken care of them. And I think that others-centeredness and that looking beyond the four walls of our church didn't hurt our family. In fact, it turned them into the same kind of kids. Kids that want to count for God and kids that want to count for His kingdom. So never forget your real family. Your real family are those who follow Jesus. And there we have it. We've worked our way down now to chapter 13. Did I tell you this is one of the most important strategic chapters in all of the Bible in understanding what Jesus has been doing from the times of the New Testament up until now and what he is even doing in the world today. We get an understanding of what Jesus is doing today through Matthew chapter 13. So, read it, study it this week, and come with us, come back and be with us next Sunday night as we continue to work our way through the Bible. Father, thank you for your blessing tonight, your love for us. Bless you.